The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. And, uh... For Center Southwest 6013, I'm going to go ahead and declare a, a medical emergency as well. Um, it's actually the, the captain uh, that's not doing well, so we need to get him on the ground uh, immediately. So just, yeah, we are an emergency aircraft at this point, Southwest 6013. Southwest 6013, roger that. And um, I understand 40 mil, it's the captain, <clears throat> incapacitated. Um, Get medical personnel on board? We do. He is alert and, and attentive right now, um, but we do have medical personnel on board that uh, is going to check him out. Roger, we'll have medical personnel standing by on the ground. When you do have a chance, um, if you could just tell me what your original destination was and uh, if you have a gate number. Uh, we don't have a gate number at this point. Uh, our original destination was Columbus. We have, uh, let's see, it would be 143 souls on board and... Uh, we currently have, well, let's call it four hours of fuel remaining, Southwest 6013. Roger, Southwest 6013, I just passed all that information on. Uh, they will have medical personnel standing by on the ground. Uh, contact LA 124.2, let them know if you need anything else. Okay, 24.2 for Southwest 6013, do appreciate the help today, thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard Flight 130 of the Squawk Ident podcast, recorded on the 23rd of March, 2023 from the mobile Aviator Sound Studios from high atop the fifth floor of the Delta Lake Buena Vista Hotel in Orlando, Florida. Not even supposed to be here today. On today's flight, I have the honor of being joined by some superb Squawk Ident co-hosts. Captain Roger, Terry S., and Alex D. join me today, and together we will discuss what causes fatigue, the recent emergency safety summit hosted by the FAA, or Federal Aviation In- Agency, and what we have learned from it, how many close calls are too many, and we also look at joyriding around the boroughs of New York City. We explore Delta Airlines and their latest recruitment efforts with the creation of Propel Flight Academy. We also look at corporate tactics being used today that circumvent pilot unions to sway pilot work groups into accepting contracts that benefit operators over employees. We have a full docket for today's show, so buckle up, sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Joining us today is an exceptional aviator and Squawk Ident co-host. He is the professional CFI, WINMEI flight instructor, a former Embraer 145 airline pilot, a King Air instructor at Dassault Falcon 900EZ, Dassault, Dassault, 900EZ, and 2000 pilot. And he's a G650 commander as well. He's a captain and director of flight operations, a corporate operator, and after a week of Salt Lake City shuttle driving, he joins us from the Residence Inn in Santa Barbara, California. Please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Captain, how are you doing? I am very proud of you, Tony. It's taken me two years, but I think we finally got off the Dassault. And I'm finally flying a French aircraft, the Dassault. 
Falcon <laughs> series. And, and I just wanted to give you a shout out after that. Um, that, that you finally got the manufacturer down. Yeah, well, you know, it's not easy. This English language is not my first, you know? Yeah, for the Italians, you know, France is very far away from, from, from Italy, you know? Reminds me of some dirty jokes, but uh, we'll move on. I digress. Uh, but yeah, I'm doing well. Um, it's been more, definitely been a little busier from a personal standpoint. I, I did do a bunch of Shul, Shul, Salt Lake City shuttles. I think I went back and forth to Salt Lake at least three times in the span of about eight or nine days wow. with airlining for them, like fly the plane up and airline back and then airline back to fly back and back and forth three different times and got off that. It actually, the plane actually went to Japan a couple of days ago. Oh, so I don't need to worry about that plane for a little while. And I'm doing a West coast shuttle for several, for a few days for a five day trip. Yeah. Now, when you fly for a private owner, and I know, you know, when, once you get hired on with a Part 91 operator or, uh, you know, a staffing agency of any kind for that purpose, a lot of times you file some non-disclosure agreements or NDAs because, you know, people want to be private. They have a lot of money and you're flying them around and their business is their business and they don't want you going around, you know, telling it people or sources like what's what's happening what's going on uh because a lot of the flying that you do are for entrepreneurs now when you're doing all this shuttle are you legitimately going around for business dealings that to your knowledge or is it more hey the family wants to go to here for shopping <laughs> what's, what's most that's, of your flying that's variable and depends on the season um a lot of the stuff that we do is personal oh, the rest of it, uh, you know, obviously is business. It depends. In our case, some owners are more personal. Some are, it's more company. The strip that I'm on is all, is all business related. Um, the Gulfstream is generally more personal related, um, but there is business involved with that. Too. So it's just, a, it's a case by case basis. Yes, I do. Almost everyone signs paperwork, you know, and I did. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think much about it and they're i mean on some of their bigger stuff i mean they're even protective of it and um, request that we're not back there or they'll just stop talking that doesn't happen all that often but um yeah i think you know i think like most things it's just i mean a matter of respect for the people who are employing you and you don't need to know everything and i'm in a fortunate position that you know all of the people that i fly around are actually very nice people and yeah yeah it was I don't think about that so much. Just and be it, respectful to the people you're flying. I, I've always find it fascinating because, you know, at least, you know, my background, obviously, you know, my background and the listeners out there understand that, you know, I came up through the, the civilian ranks and went right into airlines. And so the idea that just shut up and fly the plane, be respectful, um, take care of business at an airline level. And Roger, you make fun of us all the time, but it's like at an airline level, you know, pilots think they know everything. <laughs> like, oh, I'll tell you how this business should be run. And <laughs> did you hear this? You contract? guys do know everything. Just ask you. <laughs> just, just ask me. I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you how management's screwing us over. That's right. And, you know, speaking of uh, people that 
want to tell you how management is screwing us over. Let's introduce our next co-host. Also joining us is an outstanding aviator at Squawk I-10 co-host. He's a U.S. Navy Reserve's Chief Information Systems Technician, a certified flight instructor, and an Embraer 175 pilot for Sandpiper Regional, the alias to one of Legacy Airlines' wholly owned regional airlines. Joining us after being displaced yet again for IOE. From his podcast studio in Temecula, California, please help me in welcoming to the show, Mr. Alex D. Alex, how you doing? Well, apparently I like to screw over uh, management and companies and, you know. <laughs> no, you like to complain about it. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. I'll tell you what, this, dang it, this company here. Now you're like you the know. rest of us, Alex. You're just like me and everyone else. I, I, I am, I, you know, um, I'm just a, a regular guy, you know, just trying to do my job and hang out and fly an airplane. That's it. It's all I really care about at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, the common thread. You know, you got wings on your shoulders or on your your lapel or whatever. And, and you've got maybe you have epaulets on your shoulders, maybe not. But either way, you know, you're, if you're an aviator in today's market around the world, even. Um, you have a common bond. It's just it's the love of flying. That's why we're doing this yeah. podcast. You know, we're talking about the journey of today's aviator yeah. and what affects the aviator, today's aviator in the marketplace. And that's what we're going to be talking about here today. Now, Alex, you've been with the company now, how long? About eight months? No, I, uh, I'm over a year now. Did you hit your one year mark already? I hit my one year mark. I'm off probation. Oh my this is, this- is just a testament to how much better airline pilots really are that that somebody that now has a, an entire year of airline experience under their belt can tell you how to run the entire airline industry <laughs> I, I tip my cap to you airline guys the, the progression is just it's that quick we're giving quick, alex folks. a really hard you time know, today <laughs> you know you know roger i think i'm gonna have a myocardial in infraction infraction <laughs> the infractions are back myocardial infractions oh, technical I'm I have that while I'm flying my Desalt Falcon. Hey, leave me alone. My myocardial infraction in my Desalt. <laughs> well, you know, Alex, you've you've been flying a pretty good amount. You got a lot going on, um, and some good news coming our way as well. Do you want to share that? So, uh, my wife and I are going to be out in Texas this weekend, uh, looking at homes because we're going to. Uh, move up the family homestead from good old sunny California to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Cue the uh, Imperial March music. Sure, we'll go with that. I was going to say if you have like a yee-haw or a ride em cowboys or something like oh, yeah, that. Yeah, we'll have to throw that in there as well. <laughs> but uh, no, we're uh, we're making the move. Uh, going to be by summertime, like June, July is what we're shooting for time-wise to be out there. Yeah. Um, and just make my life and our life so much easier when it comes to quality home time that like, I don't have to spend time commuting. I can, you know, drive home instead of just, you know, hopping on a three hour flight, then driving home. Right. Right. And we've always said it from the beginning of the show. And and even before, you know, this job really there's within the airline job, there are multiple careers. And there's the career of the new hire on reserve, commuting, living in a crash pad. And that career, you know, it's, it's, it's new, it's exciting, it's, it's wonderful, but it also is very stressful and tiring and fatiguing. Be- but because it's new, you kind of put up with all that. As you get more senior in this career field, you realize that commuting sucks, 
right? And being on reserve sucks. So then, okay, maybe you, you're a line pilot that can commute, or you're a line pilot that doesn't have to commute. Now, the line pilot that doesn't have to commute, that's like the top echelon career side of this industry. You can, like, I waited a long time, almost 20 years, to, to say that, hey, I see my airplane coming in from my front yard. I better uh, head on over to the airport. And that's the situation I'm in. I'm, I'm in the most high quality of life that I've ever had in this career. I'm not commuting. You've been commuting from the beginning. You paid your dues. And I, I'm sure that is going to play a role in your attitude moving forward. Your attitude of gratitude, if I can borrow a term from a young lady on, on the television. Um, your, your commuting, it, it, it sucks, but it also gives you a perspective of an appreciation. Oh, yeah. You know. No, I, I definitely, I, I missed the bus on the uh, sitting reserve for a long period of time. I was only on reserve a month, so I, I, I can't, you know, speak for that. But I do know, and I experience the pains of the commuting life, and it, it wears on you, you know, especially when you've got to to bid your trips around. Can I commute in, you know, day of, or can I commute out day of? And like next month is beautiful. I made, I don't know how I got this, but I got my first choice of line next month. Wow. I, 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 I so we have an app, it's called um, quick bid that we use to sort kind of like a PBS style of what days you want or uh, trips. I want late starts or I want this or I want that. And I was able to, all I did was just put um, late start times and high pay. Mm -hmm. And I got my number one choice aligned. So all my trips are commutable. All, you know, I don't have to worry about commuting in day of, and then I've got three days off in between trips. So Nice. I, I have no complaints. So even if my trips run long and I have to stay an extra day, like I'm now not having to worry about, oh, well, now I've only got two days off. You know, that's a day and a half now. And now I got to commute back. And now I've only got this. Now it's like, okay, well, if I have to commute back the, the, the next day, then, well, I've got another two days off and I can wash, rinse, repeat the same process. Yeah. Yeah, it does make a big difference in the quality of life, for sure. Oh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, we have some big news today. Uh, as we mentioned in the previous podcast, we have invited a dear friend of ours and a dear friend of the show. Newest member of the Merry Bunch. He is a retired U.S. Army colonel and former Black Hawk Battalion commander. His journey has led him to operate Apache's Black Hawk C-12's UC-35s. He has a master's degree in management and strategic studies. He is a former Embraer 145 pilot and currently a Boeing 737 pilot for TransGlobal. The name we use here on the show is an alias to his employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. Joining us from his home studio in Northern Virginia. Help us in welcoming our very own Terry S. Terry... How you doing? Doing great. Doing great. I'm uh, currently enjoying day four of four days off. Oh. Uh, just finished a trip on Sunday and then uh, had four days off and start another blocker reserve tomorrow. So, you know, enjoying the time off and uh, trying to make the most of it. Now, over at TransGlobal, you've been there now. You've been off, off IOE. I know we were last time we were talking, you were kind of sitting at home and then you did have a trip and you had to deal with like weather, ad adverse weather and snow and being snowed in and whatnot. 
has the flying i know you were for, for a while there it seemed like you weren't being called but has the flying picked up for you well yeah so i wasn't being called very much uh at all i went uh after after ioe i went almost a month without flying mm. and then uh after that next trip i went about three weeks without flying and after that next trip i went about two weeks without flying so uh it's steadily getting better um this last trip i flew i was able to uh, aggressively pick up a uh, a three-day mm -hmm. so the day prior uh to your block you can uh try to go in and pick up some anything that's sitting in open time mm -hmm. and uh and hope that a line holder doesn't steal it from you and uh oh. So I, I flew that trip, finished on Sunday. Uh, I got two more blocks of reserve this month. And then actually for April, I've got a line. So I'm pretty wow. excited about that. So how long did it take? You got, you were on the line after IOE to the point where you can hold the line. How many months was that? Uh, about three months, three months of reserve. And then uh, now I'm able to hold a line. Nice. And now is the line, now you're basically in base, right? Yeah, I live in base. I live 25 minutes from the airport. From, so, are you co-domiciled there? Yeah, we have uh we cover all three of the DC uh okay. airports, so uh the yeah, it it's you may have to drive. In fact, I think my last trip in April's out of uh Baltimore, so, you know, that's a little bit further of a drive for me, but yeah. It's it's really not bad. I know it in advance. I can prepare for it and uh yeah all good so looking forward to it except except i think the last the last three trips of the month all finish with uh west coast red eyes so yeah well you're in good company there my friend <laughs> uh, yeah. part of the reason i'm bidding ontario is so that i can avoid i was doing nothing but hawaii for years and uh you know it's great but with my seniority all the all the early hawaii stuff goes relatively senior so i usually would pick up that red eye coming back from hawaii you landed at lax at six in the morning so i feel your pain that that drive home for me was like an hour and a half in traffic doing touch and goes with my head you know kind of trying to stay awake and i knew that something something was going to give so uh, why not ontario flying is not as exciting but hey five minutes from the house you can't beat that and uh, you got kind of the best of both worlds uh, with the five minutes 20 minutes um depending on where you're going but so you got iad dca and bwi airports that you cover um, that's correct pretty exciting stuff man um and are you finally settled into your nest i think so i think so it's uh things have uh have smoothed out over the last uh couple of trips so I think things are uh, things are good. Yeah. Now, when I when I was a, a young lad and I was I took a motorcycle training course and I had purchased a motorcycle. I would think it was seventeen years old, eighteen years old, and uh, I wanted to be safe and I wanted to be able to to pass the DMV test without any issues. So I took this uh, motorcycle safety course, and in there, I I'll never forget the instructor said, "Look, doesn't matter if you've been riding motorcycles for six months, six years, or you know twenty years plus." The first 300 miles on a new bike are going to be the most critical. And they recommend not having any passengers for those first 300 miles on a new bike because every bike is going to handle a little differently. You're going to get comfortable with it. And then once you get into that comfort zone, the safety margins go way up. With airplanes, I believe it's very similar. So every time you get a new type rating, you're sitting in a new flight deck for the first 
I'd say probably 300 hours of flight time, you're still kind of building your nest. You know, you know where you like your notebook and your pen and your tablet situated and where you want to hang the headset and the wires and, and everything's kind of, you're getting the feel of everything, not to mention the feel of the airplane and where all the levers are and getting that muscle memory intact so that you don't even have to look. You can just kind of put your hand 99% in the right place before manipulating anything. Um, so that nest building time is very important. That's what I mean by building your nest. So for listeners out there, if you're like, what's Tony talking about? That's it. Well, Terry, I just want to say welcome to the show. I'm really happy that you've agreed to join us and we look forward to having you on all our future chats. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Now, a lot of what we're talking about lately is fatigue, right? And what is fatigue? According to the International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO, fatigue is a psychological state of reduced mental or physical performance capability resulting from sleep loss or extended wakefulness, circadian phase, or workload. The phenomenon places great risk on the crew and passengers of an airplane because it significantly increases the chance of pilot error. Fatigue is particularly prevalent among pilots because of unpredictable work hours, long duty periods, circadian disruption, and insufficient sleep. These factors can occur together to produce a combination of sleep deprivation, circadian rhythm effects, and time-on-task fatigue. Regulators attempt to mitigate fatigue by limiting the number of hours pilots are allowed to fly over varied periods of time. Now, we've all dealt with this at some point. Any pilot that is a professional pilot, that is out on the line, that is employed, will deal with fatigue. And not just pilots. It really affects all aspects of an airline or aviation sector of operations. Flight operations often take place at night. We just talked about red eyes, circadian rhythm disruption, time zone changes, right? That this all can disrupt the circadian rhythm responsible for monitoring sleep and wake cycles. We have also discussed schedule optimization in the past and how it has increased the risk of fatigue. And I know over at Legacy, we're dealing with something called so it's a schedule optimization. This is where Crew schedule, yeah, I said it. Screw scheduling. Crew scheduling uh, builds these monthly uh, flight schedules or the sequential weekly sequences to be more productive. So instead of doing you know two legs in a day, maybe three at the most, with like 14, 15, 17 hour layovers, twenty hour layovers, sometimes even twenty four hour layovers. Now that all because of the demand on the system, the increased uh, flying that's being scheduled with not enough pilots and flight attendants and rampers and gate agents and fuelers and go on and on and on and on. Because of that, we need to optimize the schedule. So the schedule optimizer is a program that the company has paid, I don't know how much, millions of dollars for. And it's trying to make the schedule as efficient as possible. But as you know, when you stack the cards to build your house, all it takes is one card for the whole stack to fall. So what's happening is we are getting pushed to our limits as pilots. 
we have been seeing the effects of this all over the world, especially in our country over the last few months. Now, calling out fatigue is a right in Part 121 operations or airline operations. It is a right. It is a non-punitive thing. So if I'm in the middle of a trip and maybe the fire alarm went off at the hotel in the middle of the night and it woke me up and I couldn't get back to sleep for a few hours. So now I've had a disruption to my sleep. Am I fit to go fly 200 people around on a full schedule with maybe four legs in it with zero sit time with barely a chance to get a meal? I might just be fatigued. Now, fatigue is something we all know about, but do we actually know how to use it, how to call out fatigue, what's required if we call out fatigue? Now, Roger, you're in a, a private operation. Is there a need for fatigue to be even an issue with you? Have any of your pilots ever said, hey, man, I'm just too tired to move on? Or, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, that because of the operation, you guys can like take 30 winks over there while the other person is paying attention, which I'm a big supporter of. Do you ever have the need to call out fatigue to your employer or anything like that? Not really. You know, fatigue's, I'm a big believer that there's a lot of gray areas in life, and this is just another one. Um, in our operation specifically, there's not a lot of, like, we don't get pushed by the owners to that degree. There have been a couple times that, um, that it does become an issue. We flew back from Europe one time, three legs. It was pretty, we, I think we were up, I don't even know how much, 28 hours straight, maybe. Never again. The owner's like, we're not doing that again. We are not doing that again. It's, that's not happening. You know, then we, you've got, we do have some red eyes um, that we took a third crew member for. But even if you have a third crew member trying to, trying to sleep, at least in our, even in our big, nice airplane, getting crew rest is really difficult it's not comfortable it's not like a full-on bed where you can actually get decent rest and so that does you know at the end of a 13-hour flight it's it was overnight dark the entire time let's let's be honest no one is going to be at there you're you're tired and you're fatigued and then trying to kind of get your bearings around you after you get to the hotel is what just happened um, so it definitely does happen, I, not to the degree that, not nearly to the degree that the 121 airlines deal with it, especially because you guys are dealing with red eyes. Um, but like I said, I mean, there, I mean, you know, like I say, like most things, you, you know, you as you guys, especially as the pilot group, will make arguments on the fatigue. Except it's it's also not as simple as I think that, that pilots necessarily make it either. But um, yeah. I'll, let you guys put your thoughts in there. Yeah. No. I haven't flown those red eyes on a regular basis because you guys do it. I mean, I actually, I just heard a guy from another domestic carrier who just got hired almost a year ago. And I guess like a whole bunch of the West coast flying out of LA and maybe you can, you know, can um, verify this, like a whole bunch of this LA flying is red eye flights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so if you're based in LA, it's like that becomes almost your existence. I mean, go to, Go fly for FedEx if you're going to just fly red-eye flights all the time. Yeah. 
And it's not, which I, I was genuinely surprised at because I think he said something number was like 60% or 70% or some, some crazy number. Yeah. I think at one point, uh, at one point uh, on the Airbus out of LAX, we were at about 80% of our trips touched a red eye or the section of what they call the circadian low. So the hours of like between midnight and 4 a.m. Um, so the flying touched that. And now it's that, changed. Even to me, who's been around this for a long time, I was genuinely shocked. That, I mean, I never thought, maybe I just never thought about it, just how much flying out of especially specific bases, mostly on the West Coast for that West to East with the, the time, those three hours. That, I mean, that's a lot of pilots that are yeah. regularly flying backside of the clock. And it does take, I mean, it does take. Now, if you're, if you're doing a schedule where, okay, the last four days you've gotten up at the same time and you've went to sleep around the same time and it is backside of the clock flying, but it's consistent. So your, your body clock even though you might be in different time zones, but your body clock is consistent. Mm -hmm. That type of flying is not that bad. I've done it. And it's not that bad because it's at least consistent. You're going, your body's kind of getting used to it. Now, flying at night is flying at night. I don't care if you're a, a freaking night owl. It, it plays a toll on the body, not having the sunshine, not having the way we were designed to, to operate as human beings uh, in daylight. And so if it's consistent, it's not that bad. But with this optimization of schedules, what often happens is you'll start out like late at night and you'll land, you know, at maybe 6 a.m. in East Coast time, which is 3, a, 3 p.m. or 3 a.m. Uh, L.A. time. So that's just like, hey, you stayed up late one night, you know, you went out to the club, whatever. <laughs> okay, so... Fine, you get to sleep and then you're trying to sleep during the day. Hopefully, you've taken all the techniques that you've learned either by listening to this podcast or by other people or other podcasts that you know you've learned how to darken your room, how to cool it down, how, doing all the techniques you can to actually get your rest quality sleep. And then, okay, so you get up and then you go and fly kind of late, but then you're where the night before you were waking up to go fly, now you're kind of going to bed around that time because now you've gotten up and you flew a leg or two and now you're now you're back in bed getting your rest but now it's at your body clock's all messed up those are the trips that are the most fatiguing and a common mistake that some people make is go well i don't i feel fine now but by the end of the day i'm going to be fatigued so i'm just gonna call it fatigue that's not how it works preemptive fatigue calls is not good it's not a thing and a lot of times, those kind of things might be denied. It all depends on how you word it in your report. When you call out fatigue at an airline, at least at our airline, you're required to fill out two reports, one for the company and one for the FAA, a fatigue risk management report. So they get it and they look for trends. The company wants to know it also for trends because they want to go, hey, uh, the way we're doing this is not working. All these pilots are calling out fatigued and we need to change this can't have these schedules this way because it's going to create a trend that might turn into an incident or accident. We'll be talking about those here in a little bit. Now, Terry, you've been out on the line now for months. This is a little bit different from military flying. However, you did spend quite some time at a regional carrier back in the day 
Have you ever had the chance to call out fatigue or been in a situation where you should have called out fatigue? Um, I'll say I have not actually uh, called out fatigued, um, not really uh, been in the situation where I've needed to. Um, I have done some backside of the clock flying. I have flew a couple of red eyes. Um, let's see, I think uh, on IOE, I flew one. And then on a subsequent trip, I flew one. Um, and, and they're rough. I mean, especially, you know, when, when it's the last leg of your trip and you're going from the West Coast to the East Coast and you, you want to get home, you know, it's go home leg, you want to get home. But at the same time, you know, you're just, you've been flying uh, daytime or, you know, afternoon, evening flights the whole trip. And then, all of a sudden you're, you're flying a red eye home. It's yeah. I, I haven't had the opportunity to, to call out fatigue. I haven't needed to yet. Um, but, uh, I, I know some folks who have, and, uh, at, uh, at trans global seems to be a pretty transparent process. It ends up, I, I'm not, I'm not 100% schooled up on the process yet, but, uh, basically the report goes to the, uh, I believe there's a uh, like an event review committee uh, consists of members from management and members of the union who uh, who get together and review it and determine, you know, well, is this the pilot's fault? Is this a scheduling issue? Is it something external? Like, you know, there's a party in the hotel room all day or, you know, things like that. Right. Um, and then they uh, they make a determination and, and go from there. But uh, no, nah, for for me personally, I haven't had to deal with it yet. And uh, you know, as you know, my my regional days were uh, pre FAR one seventeen, and and actually pre uh, before they instituted all these uh, fatigue rules. Uh, so uh, never never had to deal with it before. Yeah, they were very fortunate. Now, Alex, you've been out on the line a little bit longer than Terry. Congratulations on your one-year anniversary being off probation. In that time, have you or anyone you've flown with called out fatigue or considered calling out fatigue? Uh, I haven't called out fatigue, nor have any of my captains that I've flown with called out fatigue. Um, it uh, There has been times where the thought has come up, because, I mean, you're running, we run, like, I was giving uh, Rob some crap because he's not here because his schedule looks almost identical to what I would be flying mm -hmm. um, where you're doing, you know, four legs, sometimes five legs. And, you know, like you're saying, four legs a day plus uh, zero sit time and having no time to get food. And yeah, that you're going to be looking at calling out fatigue. There's been the talk of it, but we, it's never come to it because it's just been. Um, push through i wouldn't call it push through in a bad way but we just you know get through the, the the trip and get to where we need to go and once you get to the hotel you can just feel like your body just release all that that energy or wh whatever you have and then once you hit that bed you're out yeah and uh you know i i like terry uh in the military where we you know we would run ourselves ragged. Like I would be on ship, um, 
12 hour shifts, 12 on 12 off. And, you know, you, once you get accustomed to being on the, the backside of the clock, it becomes easy, but it's getting that initial, you know, you're working at night and you go outside and you're looking around and going, Oh man, there's no sun at all. I don't see any sun for days Yeah, that, you know, you just, you get, your body gets used to it after a while, but it's, uh, you know, let's see, there you go. 12 on 12 off your body clock has gets accustomed to it it gets it gets into that its own rhythm yeah you know and and i think that's the big difference and i wish that more scheduling departments would understand this now i can remember when i was you know training for my first airline and every 6 months we were doing recurrent training and we would go down there was it 9 months i can't remember but um so we'd go down, I think it was every six months for recurrent. And part of our recurrent classroom work would be to talk about fatigue risk management. And in there, they would continuously bombard us with circadian rhythms, the importance of having eight hours of uninterrupted sleep every night, and what you can do to maintain a healthy lifestyle to get exercise, to eat right, so that, and you know, to, to minimize uh, alcohol and, and anything else that you might be taking that would affect good quality REM sleep. And yet here we are, not more than a decade later, and every airline pilot that I know across the board, all the airlines out there, they all complain about the same thing. That circadian rhythm is out the window. I guess that's not important anymore, is a common comment that I hear. And you have to be careful about fatigue. Now, a lot of times we as pilots, like Terry was saying, it's go home leg, or you know, you're like, if I call it fatigue, by the time I get to the hotel here and they book me a hotel and they actually get one in my system, and then I have to get transportation to that hotel, and then I'm gonna lose flying and they're gonna probably you know, I'm going to lose pay because of it, because I didn't fly. They're going to dock my, my guarantee. And all this goes through your head. And you have to outweigh, is my fatigue call really a fatigue call? Or can I just, I'm just tired, not going to push through it. There are those that argue that there is no difference between the two. And I know pilots that they'll call out fatigue faster than, you know, you can even have a second thought. They'll be like, nope, I'm done. I'm fatigued. I'm out. And a lot of times, pilots and flight attendants alike will like look at you and go, "Are you sure you're not fatigued? I don't, I don't want to go. Can you, can you call it fatigue?" Um, so it's, it kind of demeans and takes away the importance of knowing your own body, knowing your fitness level for duty, um, and weighing out all the factors. Because sometimes calling out fatigue is is a good thing and absolutely necessary. And if you feel that you cannot be at your top of your game, the way I always equate it is, all right, you're in the, uh, you're in the last hour of the day, you're about 45 minutes from landing, you're at top of descent, and you're tired, and something goes wrong. And now you're running checklists, running abnormal procedures, you're running an emergency, and you have to be at the top of your game to get that airplane safely on the ground and get all of your passengers and crew members off the airplane safely. Are you at the top of your game? And if the answer is no, you need to consider, well, maybe I shouldn't be operating this flight tonight or today. Um, that's a 
I think, a proper way to look at fatigue. Because fatigues generally create errors. And fatigue errors are not limited to just pilots out there on the line. Absolutely not. Lifestyle, work schedules, personal schedules, uh, new, new streamlined training techniques, and the increased demand to be productive both socially and professionally all play a factor in limiting sleep and more so quality of sleep. The FAA has recognized the need to discuss the, re- the recent string of errors out there on the flight line by calling for an emergency safety summit. And unless you've been under a rock, you, you know, everybody's been talking about this, at least out in the industry. The FAA finally, after 14 years, held an emergency safety summit, where more than 200 safety leaders from across the aviation industry met in specific breakout sessions on March 12, 2023, to discuss ways to enhance flight safety as part of the FAA's Aviation Safety Summit in McLean, Virginia. What they discussed were experiences, retirements, pandemic effects, the flight deck distractions, airport infrastructure, technology, and managing air traffic control system that is reaching its absolute limit. I took a, an opportunity and I listened online, I'll put a link in the show notes, to the FAA Safety Summit. It's available, the whole thing in its entirety, unedited, on the YouTubes, and I will put a link there. Now, whoever they hired to mic up this panel, <laughs> uh, Oh my God. I mean, as a podcaster and an audio enthusiast, I was pulling my hair out. It's a government sponsored event, uh, lowest bidder. I think it was like some high school kids or something. I don't think it was a professional. If so, it was community service so that they could graduate high school. Uh, yeah. And at that, I, I absolutely would believe. Um, but uh, I have a little bit of it. I'm going to play a little bit, parts of it. Uh, and then we'll discuss. So, gentlemen, bear with me. But while you're pulling that up, Tony, you said something, and I want to touch on it. Uh-huh. And Roger said something, too, that I completely agree with is the experts say that you need X amount of hours of sleep per night, but nobody knows your body better than you. Yeah. And it's a gray area when it comes to fatigue and what you could deem as a restful night's sleep of, say, eight hours of sleep, I could get in five and be completely fine True. or vice versa. And there's a, what Roger was saying, there's a huge gray area to this because that's exactly it. Everybody, all four of us here probably have a different of what's considered a restful night's sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Not I just wanted to, to mention. I think my problem with fatigue is a lot of times in my experience, like there are times where fatigue calls are necessary. Don't get me wrong. But from a generalization standpoint, it has appeared to me that fatigue calls are used for a personal advantage and not necessarily because it's a safety of flight issue. Yeah. It's going so far as, I'm merely calling in fatigue because I'm tired and they've messed with my schedule and I'm fatigued and they don't have enough pilots. So I'm basically doing this to screw the company over to give, to, to teach, to teach the company a lesson because I have heard that a lot. Yeah. As have I. And that's, and that's why I have issues with like, while yes, fatigue is real. 
Like I do not dispute that one bit. Anytime you give large groups of people in any industry, whether it's, you know, aviation or anything else, it's taken advantage of, except those advantages are, they're used more than what it's actually, the, the greater proportion is used for personal gain than it is for the actual intended purpose. Like if, if you're going to fly back, I'll kind of use you as an example and I'll make it a little bit, you know, uh, exaggerated, but let's say you flew a, a red eye back from Hawaii and you flew Hawaii back to LA and you landed and crew scheduling called you up and it said, you know what, we're really in a pinch. I need you to, I need you to fly from Phoenix to Vegas. Now it's going to be a, an hour long flight or Phoenix to Vegas, or I mean, LA to Vegas, LA to Phoenix, either one of those works. Yeah. <clears throat> 45 minute flight. And, and what is your response? I mean, first of all, I doubt that your company ever does that. Any company does that because they know that red eyes, what happens, but do they, Oh, we'll talk about it. Go ahead. Finish your thought. But then, okay. So people are going to go throw their arms up and go like you're crazy, except in your, how many times have you flown back and now you're going to drive yourself from LA to Ontario in two hours or three hours of traffic but are you going to do that? Are you too fatigued for that? Well, no, I'll, I'll drive for two hours because that's fine, but I won't fly a 45 minute flight because right. I'm fatigued, but it's a self-serving thing. Now you're kind of laughing because apparently airlines do try and make you do that, which I do not condone. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying that it becomes a self-serving thing that I'm fine. I'm not fatigued enough to get myself home because that will serve myself. But I won't help the yeah. company out if they make me fly a 45-minute flight. You can't have it both ways, but that's what human beings, not just right. pilots in this case, this isn't an airline or you know, corporate or anything. That's a human, human nature is that we are selfish. And that's where I kind of, that's, that's gray stuff comes in because we all, right. it always seems to go back to what's best for me or how can I you know, flip the bird to the company because they changed my schedule too many times. It's their fault. Yeah. And you can't control that. There's no way to control that. And yes, in my experience, you know, I, 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 in the intro, I say, you know, close to 20 years on the flight line. Actually, it, it's more than 20 years now. I need to change that. Um, but in my 20 years, every experience I've had and shared with another pilot, be it a, a, my captain or an FO that I had, every single time that they've called out fatigue, if I look at that, and put it in personal data from my recollection, I'd say more than 80% of the time, the scenario you just described is exactly when they call out fatigue. Well, I wasn't scheduled to do that, and I, I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to call out fatigue. Now, I've called in fatigue one time that I've had to in my career, and it was a previous airline, and it was before FAR 117, and the scenario was a lot like what you described, Roger. We had day one, it was three legs of flying, it was a heavy day, and then we had an eight-hour min-rest layover in Miami. Okay, so eight hours in Miami is not a lot, because anyone that has flown into Miami for a layover knows that by the time you get to the curb, there's 20 to 30 minutes. By the time you wait for an airport shuttle, there's 20 to 30 minutes. Now that shuttle needs to get you through Miami traffic to the air, to the hotel, there could be another 15 to 20 minutes. Oh, now without you, an, eight, an eight hour pre 117 in Miami. I mean, that's, that's like five hours of five. sleep. Maybe, maybe. Five, five. Okay. So the next day, day two, we were supposed to do Miami to Tallahassee and back. 
it's a short day early in the morning. We were going to be done by noon. And then we were going to have like a 20 hour layover down at the Sherry, right? On the beach. And we're like, yeah, no problem. Take a nap. And then we can like hang out uh, at the pool or on the beach and go for lunch, get a nice dinner, maybe even grab some adult beverages. And then you're like, okay, everything's good in the world, right? But what happened to us is when we took off out of Tallahassee, we're now en route to Miami, relatively short flight. As soon as we reached the top of climb, we got a message from company going, hey, actually it was our dispatcher who sent us an ACARS message that said, hey, just a heads up, cruise scheduling is going to be getting a hold of you when you land in Miami. They want you to fly an airplane to Savannah and then from Savannah to JFK and then from JFK surface trend to LaGuardia for your layover. And we're looking at it and we're doing the math and we're like, this is back when eight hours was the absolute maximum, right? And we're looking at it going, first off, <laughs> we just came off an eight hour layover, which is really five hours of sleep, maybe. And now you want us to fly not two but four legs with surface tran, and it was going to be over eight hours of flying. And we said, you know, this is not even legal. And when we landed and called crew scheduling to say, what's going on? They said, well, we put it on you right after you took off out of Miami, so that overblock you did doesn't count. Legal to start, legal to finish. And the captain goes, listen, uh, we'll fly it to Savannah. That gives you plenty of time to deadhead somebody else in and figure it out the rest. But we're not going into New York airspace this tired and then there's it, snowing over there. I, I mean, it's, are, are you kidding me? This is, this, we don't have that much juice in our batteries. Do you understand? The crew scheduler goes, well, you can call out fatigue, but you, either you have to do it or it's a no, no show or miss assignment. And the captain looks at me and I give him a thumbs up and I'm like, let's fatigue it, you know? And he's like, sorry, we're fatigued. This, this is ridiculous. And it was, it was absolutely ridiculous. So we called out fatigue. It was my one and only time that I felt it necessary to call out fatigue. We ended up going to the hotel. We both crashed, fell asleep. And like I said, later on in that, after that evening, had dinner together and kind of talked about how ridiculous that was for us to have to be pushed to that limit. Now you mentioned, you know, that scenario, but that's not always the case. And yes, people do use it as a personal weapon, for lack of a better word, sometimes. And there's nothing you can do about that. People are going to be people. But on 6th of March, I was on a trip, day two, scheduled, scheduled. Well, let's start with day one. Day one was 7.30 departure out of Los Angeles to Honolulu. Land at Honolulu at 11.30 a.m. their time. The next day, it was a 6.52 a.m. departure out of Honolulu. We landed in Los Angeles at 2.11 p.m. We had a sit for, what, three hours? And we left Los Angeles at 6.04 p.m. And we flew to San Antonio, Texas and landed in San Antonio, Texas at 10.44 p.m. Texas time. Now, this trip was legal. It was legal. Because the legal limit was 14 hours of duty and 9 hours of flight time. Our duty time came out to 13 hours and 12 minutes. So we were legal by, what, 47 minutes, 48 minutes. So we could have played a game. We could have delayed a flight here. 
we could have found a maintenance issue with the airplane. <laughs> but we didn't do that. Now, the captain that I was flying with on that trip said to me, yeah, man, uh, last week uh, I couldn't get any sleep and I ended up flying. As soon as we landed in LA, I was just too tired. I ended up calling out fatigue last week. And I said, oh, you, you did? And he's like, yeah, like, people should be calling out fatigue, he said to me, because otherwise the company's going to keep scheduling this shit. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, is that something you want to do this week? You want to call out fatigued? Uh, you know, again, like, to prove a point, right? And he's like, well, it's just kind of played by ear. So in the process of flying together, I told him how weeks earlier <laughs> I had an issue where we had a delay and I got removed, but then I got put on what's called a recovery obligation. And because the trip touched Hawaii, it's considered international and the company can actually schedule you up to 30 hours past your original finish time. So if you're finished on Monday morning at 6 a.m., they actually can schedule you all the way through Thursday afternoon or Monday, Tuesday afternoon. And, uh, and I'm like, you know, that's going to happen if we call it fatigue, right? They'll take us off this trip, but then you're gonna, we're going to be going into our day off. I mean, it's a possibility right? It's not a guarantee, but it's a possibility. And he looks at me and he goes, gosh, you're right. You're right. I didn't think of that. I'm like, but if you're too tired, I mean, I'm going to make my assessment. I'll do the three hour sit. And at the end of the three hour sit, I'll make an assessment. Um, And we ended up flying it. We did not call out fatigue because then you're, you know, what's going through your mind? Well, I got 200 people in the back that want to get to San Antonio and, you know, the flight attendants, they're on a schedule too. They want, they want to complete their schedule if at all possible, without any hangups. You know, I don't want to delay stuff, but how am I feeling? Am I going to make it? Am I going to go to San Antonio atop a descent and have an engine failure potentially happen and then be at the top of my game? And before we signed fit for duty inside the flight deck while we were doing our pre-flight flow, I looked at him and I went, are you fit? He goes, yeah, I'm fit. Like, okay, me too. (laughs) So we did not call out fatigue. But that was scheduled that way. And that, I think it's taking advantage. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's safe. And when they have this FAA safety summit, and I listened to pretty much the whole thing, and everybody, all these leaders from all the different safety organizations, all the three-letter government agencies were there for aviation. And I'm thinking to myself, you guys are missing the point. We're being pushed, not just the pilots, but the whole system's being pushed to the brink. And then you wonder why this stuff is happening. I went on and on, didn't I? No, but it's it's necessary. Like it's it's good to talk about that. Like uh, the schedule optimization, everything that the airlines are doing to to push us to to get us to basically maximize our on duty period is pushing us to the limits. And something's got to give. And, you know, the, these little snippets of what's been happening in, in the industry of like the, the, you know, the runway incursions here, the, the, you know, planes getting too close on short final there, like everything that's happening is, is it, something's going to happen. It's all these little waves are going to happen and create a big event. Some, uh, some airliner is going to crash and then everyone's going to be like, Oh, well, fatigue was the issue. Why didn't we talk about that? Well, let's talk about it now before it becomes an issue. Yeah. And and that's what I wanted to play before I play some of that uh, audio from the safety summit itself, uh, ABC news and, and, and all the other news agencies, but ABC news did a really 
I think a good job. They have a, let's see what this is, about three minutes of uh, a report that kind of overviews everything that's been happening. It's not 100% complete, but guess, because guess what? Another near-miss incident has happened since the FAA Safety Summit. Now, let me just play this uh, clip from ABC News, and then we'll, we'll move on. This morning, another close call between two planes is under investigation. The FAA says a Republic Airways flight crossed the wrong runway at Reagan National Airport after a United flight had been cleared to take off from that same runway. Air traffic control is heard alerting the United pilot. Oh, you're not two down three. Scan the takeoff clearance. Reporting takeoff. Reporting takeoff. That makes at least seven close calls this year alone, including one at New York's JFK Airport, where a Delta pilot had to slam on the brakes after an American Airlines plane crossed the wrong runway. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Rejecting. All right, then. Uh, Some analysts say these cases show the industry can't keep up with the post-pandemic travel boom. Staffing will be one issue of discussion at the FAA Safety Summit today, being attended by leaders across the industry. How concerned are you? I'm very concerned. We watch these things very closely. If you look at the last decade or so, uh, you would see between 10 and 20 times a year typically that this would happen. This year, we're on track to have more than 20, and even one is uh, one that I would not like to see happen. The head of the FAA says today's summit is focusing on warning signs and how to make things safer. Pete Buttigieg there, the Transportation Secretary of the United States government, um, discussing what's going on with the transportation industry and uh, you know all these near misses and, and incidents that have happened close call effects uh that even like he said it even one is one too many now the safety summit has come and gone and pete opened it up with some remarks forgive the audio here i'll play just a little bit of the audio um but like i said pretty uh Pretty junior uh, event here, <laughs> audio people. But here we go. Take notes, guys. There'll be a test later. Uh, I want to start by acknowledging and thanking our FAA Acting Administrator, Billy Nolan, for your tremendous work and for bringing us together. Billy. Our National Transportation Safety Board, Hamdi, thank you so much for joining us today and for everything you do across every mode. Uh, I want to recognize uh, former NTSB Chair Sumwalt for uh, joining us today. Thank you for returning. This is an all-hands-on-deck effort, so we're glad you're part of this. All right. And uh, I want to thank everybody who's here and participating across the public sector, industry, labor, all of our stakeholders, because we are dedicated to the common goal that is bringing us together at this summit, which is, of course, strengthening safety. America has the safest, most complex system in the world because of the work you all do and because of the standards we all hold ourselves to. We never settle, and when we see an issue, we move swiftly, and we find ways to move together. That's why we've asked everybody to come here today. Now, I'm not going to play the whole thing, but um, as you can see, the audio is a little bit messed up. It does get a little bit better here. Um, but yeah, Pete, he comes and he introduces everyone and he talks about safety and how important safety is. Um, and it's one thing he said that kind of caught my ear and I, I kind of appreciated it. And that's this. 
as our uh, as our aviation system evolves, are our current systems adequate for the most important part of the aviation system, which is our people, and what needs to be adapted or enhanced? And beyond aviation, can we learn from other high-stakes industries whose workforces have also gone through dramatic changes during the pandemic? So today's summit is going to be the first in a series of coordinated events and actions, all part of the call to action that we put out last month. That includes an aviation safety info share meeting at the end of the month and a cast meeting on April 6th, all of which will inform the work of our new safety review team. Aviation has to be about safety first and moving people and goods within that safety first framework. That's how we keep U.S. aviation's place as the safest, most complex system in the world. And it's how we maintain this extraordinary fact, which is that a mode of transportation that consists of propelling millions of passengers, dozens or hundreds at a time, through the skies in a metal tube at nearly the speed of sound several miles above the earth is also somehow the safest mode of transportation that we know. That is what we marvel at, but also what we dare not take for granted. Now, <laughs> we've all heard this, right? Uh, you know, uh, I fly big hollow metal tubes at the uh, closest speed of sound, uh, miles below the earth, right? It's like the best pickup line in a bar, by the way. Uh, make sure you write that down. <laughs> so he's talking about how, you know, safety has to be our number one, number one concern. And he, and he does a lot of fluff in his introduction. But I do appreciate what Pete Buttigieg um, is doing. Because if you ask any aviator out there, who was the transportation secretary before him? Most of them will not be able to answer that. But today, if you ask anyone who is the transportation secretary, almost everyone can say, well, that's that Pete Buttigieg guy from Wisconsin or something like that, right? So, you know, I appreciate, I applaud the exposure that he is getting out there. Now, is part of that because of the incidents that have happened? Maybe, but he's getting out there. He is in the media almost every day talking about all the transportation issues we're having in the country, not just aviation, railway as well. So I applaud him for that, regardless of what you might think of his political um, standing or opinions. Also, we've talked about Billy Nolan on this podcast. He is currently the acting FAA administrator. Now, Billy had a few interesting things to say as well. Well, good morning. Uh, thank you, Secretary Buttigieg, for not only for your interest, but for your leadership. And thanks to all of you for being here. I am pleased to see so many familiar faces in the audience and to know that you're taking time to join us today for this safety summit. When I call this meeting, this gathering several weeks ago, it was because we had seen, as the Secretary mentioned, an uptick in incidents across the aviation system. In the intervening time, we've experienced additional incidents, including events on runways, terminal ramp areas, and even unruly passenger incidents that continue to defy logic. I think I speak for all of us when I say that and certainly the traveling public, when I, that these events are concerning. They are not what we've come to expect during a time of unprecedented safety in the U.S. air transportation system. The question is, what do they mean? 
Many years ago, while I was learning to fly, one of the first lessons my first instructor taught me was to listen to the aircraft. What's it telling you? That was a very important lesson that had stood with me throughout my entire career. And today, that's what we're here to find out. What is the system telling us? As a safety community, we must pay attention to the events of recent month and what the system is trying to tell us. I'm honored to be joined in this plenary session by former National Transportation Safety Board Chair Robert Zumwalt, who will help us facilitate a conversation among our panelists that I will hope will help us frame our thinking. Now, he goes on and, and, and talks a little bit more about introducing everyone and what they have to say. And he also said this. As I mentioned in my call to action, the biggest mistake we can make as an industry is to become complacent. As a safety professional, if you are comfortable, it probably means you're missing something. In, light, in that light, my colleagues at the FAA and I have brought all of us here together today. There's no question that aviation is amazingly safe. But vigilance can never take a day off. Vigilance can never take a day off. I liked that. Um, he goes on, and and then of course, um, he also talks about you know what they're going to talk about and everything. Uh, last thing I'm going to play from him is what he mentioned about the safety net of America's aviation system. America's aviation safety net is strong. Our goal. Our obligation is to sew those threads even tighter. I want to encourage you to come into these sessions with an open mind. And as I mentioned in the call to action, I want to hear from our stakeholders about concrete, to echo the Secretary's message about concrete steps that we can take in the near and midterm to make the world's safest transportation system even safer. Now, what I really liked about this summit. It's about an hour and 38 minutes long. Uh, again, I'll put a link in the show notes to it. We're going to discuss it here a little bit more in detail. But the, especially in these intros here, there's the three intros. We had uh, Secretary Pete, we have Billy, and we also have the NTSB uh, Safety Board Chair that comes up and gives an introduction before the panel comes on stage. Now, again, as, as I mentioned, I'm not going to talk about uh, or share audio about the panel. If you want to hear it, go ahead and, and take a look at it. Um, but she had a couple interesting things to say as well, and that is Secretary Board Chair Hominy. Uh, and this is what she talked about, the global gold standard. A safety record like ours is the result of years, decades of intentional effort. The critical efforts of everyone in this room, from operators manufacturers, labor unions, to private aircraft owners and pilots, the FAA, the NTSB, and the media. You've all contributed to our reputation as the global gold standard for aviation safety. But we can't take that for granted. I agree with the secretary. I agree with Billy, Billy when he says that. Now, I often hear in 10 of the last 12 years, there have been no airline passenger fatalities. That's true, but the absence of a fatality or an accident 
doesn't mean the presence of safety. And that's really what I wanted to you know, focus on right there. The absence of a fatality doesn't mean the presence of safety. Now, we as operators know that we have to be diligent every single moment that we are on duty at the controls of an aircraft because 9 out of 10, when you make a mistake or when somebody else makes a mistake and you're present, like every single incident that we've heard about here in the past few months, somebody made a mistake, we had a close call, a near miss, and it all could have been prevented because if we follow the threat and error management model, the TEM, any one of those pilots or captains could have said, uh, when they said, hey, traffic on three mile final, most recently, traffic on a 2.4 mile final lineup and or uh, clear for immediate takeoff. Any one of them could have said uh, negative. We're going to go ahead and wait. Okay, cancel takeoff clearance. I mean, just because the controller tells you to get in the flight path of another <laughs> aircraft coming in doesn't mean you have to do it. They've given you a clearance for takeoff. Maybe you know that uh, you might need a second or a minute on the runway. It's going to take you 30 to 60 seconds to line up and spool up those engines anyway. Anyway. So whenever an air traffic controller tells you, you know, position and hold traffic on final or clear for takeoff traffic on final, immediate takeoff uh, without delay, any of those topics, you can always say a negative, we're going to hold short until, because you're not, you're not in anybody's way. You're holding short. Um, and that's always an option. Now, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback here. I'm not trying to say that that's what they should have done. I wasn't there. None of us were. But the presence of safety is something that needs to be on the forefront of our thoughts in everything we do. Not just us, but those around us. If your FO is doing something that is potentially unsafe or will lead you down a path that is unsafe, what are you going to do? You're not going to sit there and go, well, I saw you, you know, not call for gear, but hey, I figured, let's see how hard it would be to taxi this airplane with the gear up. I mean, that's never going to happen. You're going to say something, say something, or see something, do something. So why would you allow an outside force like air traffic control or, or scheduling or dispatch or your passengers or your flight attendants, why would you let them have an action that would cause you down this road of unsafety, unsafe uh, actions. So got to be aware. You got to be alert. Got to be awake. Got to be at the top of your game. Now, Roger, this is not something that you would normally spend time, your precious time, looking into and diving into and discussing. But obviously, you're a heavy reader and you've seen all these particular instances in the news. What are your thoughts on this Aviation Safety Summit? Do you think it's all smoke and mirrors? Do I think it's all smoke and mirrors? No, it's not all smoke and mirrors. And I think that there is no doubt that the first few months of 2023, and I don't, re I don't actually remember when, when these quote unquote near misses started if it was the end of 2022. But there is no doubt within the past six months or however long it's been that there has been a rather noticeable uptick in 
incidents. Now that's I, 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 that's not just air travel. I mean, we have rail travel as well that you briefly, you know, just briefly touched on. Like that, there's been multiple derailments. I don't know, and I don't know anything about that industry. How does a train? How do multiple trains come off rails? They're, it's fixed, but um, and so I think that I I do think that it is appropriate of them and for them to call this safety summit or whatever they wanted to call it. However, at the same time, I am also guessing that the amount of things that they could actually accomplish or discuss at that meeting would be pretty limited at this point because we don't have the information. Why did these things happen? That's what we need to kind of figure out in my mind. And I think that, yeah, I mean, yeah, you need hard data. And now I suspect, and and this is all just conjecture, that each of these incidents is going to be a little bit different. I mean, we have some of its pilot pilot error, some of its air traffic control error. Why were the pilots, Why did, what happened to the, the pilots error? I mean, you kind of were touching on this fatigue, fatigue thing. Was fatigue a factor in any of them? Well, maybe, but I mean, quite frankly, statistically probably not and you sure aren't going to be able to convince me that triple seven crossing the wrong runway is because those triple seven pilots were fatigued on their first flight to go fly overseas right or the, they, yeah or the triple seven that did a nosedive and 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 almost did a nosedive into the pacific ocean well and i think that that was Hawaii. a weather related thing and that was you know no you that know, was a pilot a, error <laughs> a bad dis- well I, the pilot error was the decision yeah. To go at that time. But again, that's you're not going to convince me that they decided to make they that decision was made based on fatigue. No. But and, and that's there something that the panel lot. does talk about. We need the hard data. We need that. We need to collect it. We need to come with it. And the question was asked, Roger, just like you so eloquently asked, you know, what does this all mean? It can't all be fatigue. They said, and they emphasized, especially the the a moderator of the panel emphasized that we have a post-pandemic ramp up of flying that every airline is trying to one up the next competitor by having more and more flying available so that they can sell more and more tickets and by doing that they are optimizing our schedules because they can't get the employees fast enough rampers fuelers pilots gate agents all of it mechanics They can't get us fast enough to come back, to get trained. So we're hiring like gangbusters. All the airlines in the country are hiring like gangbusters, and they're all new. How many orange vests do you see out on the ramp today? Everyone's got an orange vest on. They're all new. And with a lack of experience comes fatal problems. Look at the ramper in Rochester that got fatally ingested into an engine. I mean, these things happen. A lot of times because of a lack of experience or a lack of training. One of those, and they, and they and touched I, on all those. Aspects. I think that a lot of that is true, except to be honest, I would even make it a more general statement is that we have a post-pandemic ramp up of life. Life, yeah. Everybody, I mean, everybody's life was profoundly affected by that event. We've got 
inflation that's running away, housing costs that people can't afford to live, food costs that have gone up, the stress of everyday life. And it doesn't matter what industry that you are in. We have a post-pandemic ramp up of just everything. And aviation is not immune to that. Mm. But what is the mindset of an air traffic controller? What is the mindset of a pilot, of a ramper, of a train driver, engineer, of of anything? Because at least even I feel it now that I am pulled. The expectations are bigger. The, you know, how am I going to survive? How are my kids going to survive? The world seems to be spinning half out of control. It just almost fell apart because of the pandemic. You know, my kids come into my mind all the time, like I just said. And now it kind of comes into play, like you were saying, that it does affect the business is that, okay, well, I want to make money and I want to have money, 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 money. And the company is like, well, we need to make money, but to make money, we need lots of pilots. We need to optimize you guys. And then the pilots fight back and say, look, I want to work less and I don't want you to push me, but I want you to pay me because I need to survive and pay and pay for my kids' college education, which has gone up 5,000% since 1980. I mean, you can make all kinds of arguments, but it just appears to me a total conjecture. Again, I have no data on any of this, but just... I love the words you you use, this post-pandemic ramp up, and I would just leave it like this ramp up of everything about the human condition and what it's like to just exist, just what it's like to survive in today's world. And maybe that's where we're seeing some of this stuff. And each and every person involved in this incident is going to have a slightly different story. And it might not have anything to do with fatigue unless you want to just say life is fatiguing every single day that we live. Um, And I'm, I'm done. Total conjecture. Uh, I, I, this <laughs> Amen, is a, brother. Extremely well, complex, so well said. Oh my God. Extremely complex thing that's going on. We don't have the data. And even when we do have the data, I think it's going to be a much more complex thing than just quote unquote safety. I mean, if it was yeah. safety was our number one priority, you're going to go in and we'll just, we'll just take DFW or Chicago, Chicago here. We're going to have one airplane moving on the ramp at all times because safety first. Yeah, right. But that's not. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there is a risk reward to everything. And yes. any time that you put people in the massive amounts of people, there's this post-pandemic ramp up of, I want to travel. I want to live my life. So the airlines, okay, we got to make money. And the pilots, well, so you got pilots, we need you to fly because all these people, they have places to go. And we're going to pay you money, but we're going to pay you the money and you're going to need to work for it. And I need you to fly one extra leg or two extra, you know, sometimes an idiotic four extra legs, kind of like that trip that you were talking about several years ago. I got ago. four legs later today. Yeah, thanks. Like, you know, there is a breaking <laughs> point to all of this because we cannot. Yeah. It's, we can't, we don't have the, we don't have the resources to, do it all. Yeah. And then it's going to break down because we are human beings. We are fallible. We are breakable. Yeah. We are emotional. And we are all these things that we're all experiencing together after the world almost just fell apart. Right. And the safety, the cup of safety is, is, you know, running over. It, it's over full. We're, we're, it's just inevitable. Now you mentioned the, the railway, the NTSB report that I read uh, a small little bit about the, the toxic spill that happened in, was it Ohio? Um, and those railway companies own the rail and they have thermal sensors every so many miles. They have thermal sensors and they, and those sensors pick up on the temperature of the bearings of those, those big railway, uh, I guess they're not wheels. What are they called? Um, 
I guess the train train car wheels, whatever. So what happens is in order to be more productive, those trains are getting longer and longer and longer, and they've reached the point where in the past, if a, a particular rail or train uh, length uh, departed the station and it hit one of these thermal sensors and said, oh, you got a hot uh, bearing. So what they would do is they'd find where in the rail ahead there was a, a turnoff where they can pull off on a side rail and then they would have the engineers inspect the issue uh, and maybe disconnect that car, whatever they had to do. But because these rail uh, trains are getting longer and longer, those side rails were not ever engineered to be long enough for what they're currently running. So because of that, that train, that particular train circumvented the side rail for the inspection and says, well, we, we can't pull off on that side rail. We're too long. So we're going to go to the next one. And what happened is between those two points, that bearing overheated, it, it basically welded itself, causing a derailment causing a toxic spill, causing the city to make a bad judgment call and say, let's just burn the toxic material, you know, creating a mass pollution event. So it's those kind of decisions that happen far upstream that the event happens downstream and, it, and people are asking, well, how does this happen? Every single event, like you said, Roger, is going to be unique. Now, Alex, you know, you've been kind of quiet over there. Uh, but I want to hear from you. You, as a chief in the U.S. Navy, you're dealing more with IT stuff, information technology. How do you see the safety summit as being a first stepping stone to improving a system that is at its breaking point? I mean, the t we have technology, and the, the the rest of the world, as far as in the aviation world, and I'm just going to use aviation, their radar and their what they're using to control and maneuver airplanes in the air is 2000s technology. The the FAA system is still operating in in the 60s and 70s with the green radar sweeps in their in their facilities. Uh, um, I, I think this is a fantastic thing that they're doing this call to action and 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 trying to to nip it in the bud because they're seeing all these different things. Like you guys are, I honestly did not know that about the the rails and how they work. Like they have a bearing heat sensor and they say, "Hey, go over here," and they decided to push on, and that's what happened. Like I didn't know that. That's awesome that we have stuff like that. Why don't we have that for aviation? Why doesn't that compound into everything else that we do? Um, if we've got the technology, why are we not? Why are we not using this technology to our advantage? Um, and you pose a very interesting question, they're, they're, Alex, because you said the technology is there. Why are we not using it? I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, but, but what you sparked is something <laughs> that the NTSB chairman said. Now I'm going to play a couple more minutes of this before we we put it to bed, um, and then we want to hear from Terry as well. Uh, but a couple minutes of her talking about systems that have been recommended by the NTSB to prevent these very things from happening that were recommended over 23 years ago. And because of money and other reasons, 
They have not. Let's see what she has to say. Again, NTSB uh, Safety Board Chairman, uh, Mrs. Homedy. The NTSB never forgets. Not a single life lost. Zero is and always will be our goal. And I know it's many of yours as well. In calling for this safety summit, I'll call it a call to action. Billy said, now is the time to stare into the data and ask hard questions. I couldn't agree more. There have been far too many close calls and near collisions recently, any of which could have had devastating consequences with precious lives lost. The NTSB is currently investigating six runway incursions since January, including one at Austin where the aircraft came within 100 feet of each other, endangering the lives of 131 people on board two aircraft. The two planes in Burbank were within 300 feet of each other. We're also investigating two wrong runway landings that happened last June. One was a cargo plane in Tulsa with two crew members on board. The other was a passenger flight in Pittsburgh where 174 people were at risk. And we're investigating two significant events that occurred in December on the same day, both in Hawaii. One was a severe turbulence incident that left 25 people injured. In the other, the aircraft came within several hundred feet of hitting the Pacific Ocean. These recent incidents must serve as a wake-up call for every single one of us before something more catastrophic occurs, before lives are lost. Too often, we've seen the federal government and industry act after an accident, after lives are lost, once the headlines are made. Congressman Obistar, who was my boss and a big champion for, over, uh, for aviation safety, said, called that the tombstone mentality. Our entire mission at the NTSB is to prevent that next accident. In fact, that's why we look at incidents, which is especially important in this pivotal moment, and it is a pivotal moment. This is a real challenging time for the industry. The industry is ramping back up from the pandemic, during which a number of people, including my friends, were either retired or laid, were laid off. A new workforce is coming in and needs to be appropriately, adequately trained. Some who were out during the pandemic also need retraining. And our airspace, already the most complex in the world, is about to get even more congested. Drones, advanced air mobility, even more commercial space launches and reentries. There's a question I'm often asked when I give speeches. What keeps me up at night? What keeps me up at night is the next family that I have to talk to when we go on scene to investigate an accident. It's that next family. It's also the investigators that I talk with on scene who say, we've seen this before. We've issued recommendations on this. They haven't been acted upon. Those recommendations could have prevented this. It's heartbreaking. And it's especially heartbreaking for our investigators when they see that. 
Now, the NTSB has issued seven recommendations on runway collisions that have not been acted upon. One is 23 years old and still appropriate today on technology warning pi pilots of an impending collision. How many times are we going to have, have to issue the same recommendations over and over and over again? When we do, and sometimes we get the response that it costs too much. I'm very passionate about safety, so I'm going to ask you to think about this. What is too expensive? Think about your loved ones. Do they deserve a price tag? Your spouse, your children, your best friend, your mom, your dad. That's who we're talking about. Now, the NTSB held a forum in 2017 on runway incursions. The FAA industry and labor made wonderful presentations, with the FAA highlighting pilot deviation and ATC communications as key concerns. We came out of that forum with everyone calling for better data and implementation of technology that would prevent runway incursions like ASDX and ASSC. So where are we six years later? What's happened? We have the data. We have the data. We know that there are about roughly 1,500 to 1,700 runway incursions annually. We know the vast majority of those are low to no risk, but there are some that are risky, and it only takes one. Now, she goes on to also talk about cockpit voice recorders or flight deck uh, voice recorders. And she had indicated that the NTSB has for years now recommended that they update the standard cockpit voice recorder, which is currently has to be able to record in a loop a minimum of two hours. They are recommending a minimum of 25 hours. Cockpit voice recorders or flight deck voice recorders to be PC are some of the best tools for the NTSB during their investigations to collect all the data to be able to get as accurate information as possible. Now, she did mention a couple things in there that I was not aware of. Did you guys catch it? The ASDX and the ASSC. You ever wonder what that stuff is? Terry, have you heard of it yet? Come across it? Um, ASDX, I, I believe that's the, uh, that the ground surveillance radar tells yes. controllers exactly where everybody is on the airfield. Yes. Uh, and according to a publication from the FAA.gov, I'll put a link in the show notes, airport surveillance detection equipment model X or AS, it's actually ASDEX. Um, and this system is a surveillance system using radar multilateration and satellite technology that allows air traffic controllers to track surface movement of aircraft and vehicles. It was developed to help reduce critical category A and B runway incursions. The ASDEX alerts air traffic controllers of potential runway conflicts by providing detailed coverage of movement on runways and taxiways. By collecting data from the variety of sensors, the ASDEX is able to track non-transponder equipped and transponder equipped 
vehicles and aircraft on the airport movement area. The data that the ASDEX uses comes from the following sources. Surface radar located atop of the air traffic control tower or surface surveillance radar located on a remote tower. Multi-lateration sensors located around the airport. Airport surveillance radar, such as the ASR-9. Automatic dependent surveillance broadcast, which is ADS-B sensors and terminal automation system to obtain flight plan data. So all of this is available to controllers, but only at 35 major airports. Baltimore, Boston Logan, Bradley International, Chicago Midway, Chicago O'Hare, Charlotte, Dallas, Denver, and so on and so forth. There's a long list here of the, some of the biggest airports in the country. So this is a tool. And Really, every international heavy traffic, heavy 121 operator airport should have this available. Now, yes, JFK does have this available. And that was one of my first complaints is when this happened, it could have happened to anyone with the, with the 777 and the 737 Delta incursion that the administrator did talk about um, that happened at JFK. This surface detection system is in place. There is a monitor in the control tower that's supposed to be monitoring. When that 777 turned the wrong way on the taxiway before turning again to intercept the active runway and have a runway incursion, someone should have caught that. Now, I'm not saying it's their fault, but someone should have caught that. These are all the safety tools. Just because these safety tools are in place doesn't mean that they're actually being manipulated and used appropriately to prevent this kind of thing from happening. There's a human factor here. The uh, ASSC, as mentioned, Airport Sur Surface Surveillance Capability, is what the um, ADSB is a primary thing to that. So the ASSC improves surface surveillance and situational awareness in all kinds of weather. It's similar to a prior the prior system developed by the U.S. called the Airport surface detection equipment model, which is what we just talked about. Um, so this is the newer version, the ASSC. It's also deployed at 35 airports in the U.S., and controllers can see the aircraft and, aircraft and ground vehicles on the surface. So it's the next gen of the same thing. ASSC and ASDEX are really are there to, to detect conflicts and alert the controllers of an impending conflict. So the tools are there at least at 35 airports, you would think that maybe they'd be at more, but I don't know. Well, there's, a, there's another thing out there that, uh, that they didn't really uh, discuss that's been out for years called the Runway Awareness and Advisory System. Mm -hmm. So uh, you'll hear in some aircraft, uh, as you approach a runway, uh, the airplane will tell you approaching runway two five right. Yeah. Um, I don't know uh, how it is at your company, um, or uh, I, I can tell you at mine. It's not on all the airplanes. It only exists in, uh, I believe, for us, our seven thirty seven maxes mm. have it, but the NGs do not. So. You know, that's a system and, and, you know, of course, it's a commercially developed system. So guess what? It costs money. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it costs money to implement. It costs money. I, I don't know. I don't know if if necessarily it would cost money for for training, mm-hmm. but um, certainly to uh, to make sure that that system is installed on the aircraft. If the aircraft is even able to be retrofit to include that system, I don't know. But that's a pretty easy one, you know. When when a controller clears you to you know taxi runway four cross runway one and uh you are taxiing along and you hear approaching runway whatever not one of those yeah yeah you know um that'll get your attention hopefully if you're paying attention as a pilot um so or or it's just another tool and and you know that's a system that comes down to to money and and being able to install it or retrofit the aircraft to be able to accept it i i think that's an easy one that would help um terry i got you one, know there's i got one for you on that for flight the what we all used in flight training has the same thing in right. embedded into it you don't have to spend a shit ton of money to upgrade it to an airplane your ipad will scream at you when you're approaching a runway using ForeFlight. well let's take that even a step further so uh for flight is owned by boeing now right mm-hmm. um as is jeppesen yep who makes jep fd pro yep. which we all use yeah now, if so, if the why is GPS FD Pro yelling at us when we right. cross runways? Well, half the time, eh, lately it's been better, but half the time we have the airport moving map display in our Jeppesen, and we have the moving uh, little airplane like us, right? So we have the little yeah. magenta triangle that that represents you, and it should show you real time with very little lag where you are on the airport with the airport moving map display. And that's recommended by the company that we use that all the pilots use that while taxiing on the ground. Um, problem is, a lot of times pilots complain that, hey, man, are, is your satellite picking up your because it doesn't know where I am. <laughs> it's not displaying me. Um, and that's because we're not allowed to use the Stratus Bluetooth satellite receiver in the cockpit because it's not approved by the administrator for 121 operations. So if they gave us all like at least one of the pilots you know one of those stratus you know or they had every cockpit had the stratus where our tablets hooked up to it and then we had a more consistent moving map display then that would be an excellent tool and why not incorporate that you don't have to spend millions on the airplane now i know alaska years ago when i was commuting and i was commuting on alaska out of seattle every single one of their 737s we're talking pre-merger with uh with the Virgin America. Every single one of those, they had that on there. And I, I queried the, the pilots. I said, wow, what is that? And they're like, yeah, the insurance company made us put that in all our airplanes because they, they, they said that by putting that in, they were going to lower their insurance costs for the airline because that tool statistically, the I forget the name of the, the people at the insurance companies that do the statistics on probabilities of things happening, but um, they... What are they called? The underwriters. Un- well, yeah, underwriters, but I think there's a, a specific uh, name of a, a statistician that does that. They they figured it out that they could 
pass the savings on to the company and they, the company saved millions of dollars in insurance premiums by installing this in all of their 737s. I don't know if they're still using it. Yeah, occasionally it was annoying because you were taxing past an intersection. You weren't even pointed at the runway and they're like, approaching, right? I'm like, yeah, I know we're taxing on the parallel runway here. Yeah, approaching, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. So after a while, even that can be something you ignore um, because if it's not 100% accurate, which at the time, years and years ago when I was commuting, um, it wasn't that accurate. But it was, I could see how it would be an extremely helpful tool to prevent runway incursions. Well, going back to your, your uh, ADSB statement, you know, we, we can't, can't have the stratus in the aircraft. That's great. Um, but there are avionics packages out there. I was flight instructing last summer, and some of our aircraft had the uh, the newer Garmin avionics mm. that broadcast that ADSB out via either Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. So it it can be done. It's just it comes down to money, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well. <laughs> As the world turns, the money... Cool stuff. <laughs> got it all. We got Stratus. That's it. We got yeah. moving maps. Yeah, Roger's got it. I got all multiple the... ways to know where I am at the whole time. That way, when I fall asleep and I wake up, I, I still know where I'm at. Good job. <laughs> well, with that, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsors. All right. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from the break. Well, we've been having, a, a, I think, a phenomenal discussion. I really do appreciate all of you for joining us today. And I want to thank, again, my co-hosts here uh, for this and their insight on aviation safety. Now, aviation safety is something that is very important, you know, in, as a whole in this industry. Because, you know, not unlike the sea, flying can be very unforgiving. And we, we take pride on, you know, the industry that we have, the, the standards that we hold ourselves to. But occasionally we hear a story about shenanigans. And we want to share those shenanigans with you here on the podcast. And recently, someone did something that was pretty bonehead, but so entertaining. From ABC7, on March 2nd, they published a headline that said, American Airlines bus stolen from JFK Airport. Police have identified the suspect in the wild chase. From downtown Brooklyn, police have identified the suspect who they say stole an American Airlines bus from the JFK International Airport and led police on a chase. Officials say 43-year-old Roshan Quildon uh, drove the bus across multiple boroughs, leading the police on a 15-mile chase. The incident happened just before 2 a.m. Wednesday when Quildon reportedly jumped into a bus that was left running in lot 12. The airport employee followed an airport employee followed the bus and called the police. Police say Quildon drove on the Van Wick Expressway and Grand Central Parkway in Queens. The FDR Drive, <laughs> F 
FDR Drive in Manhattan and across the Brooklyn Bridge into Brooklyn, where it was finally pulled over on Cadman Plaza West. Quildon is charged with grand larceny of an auto and criminal possession of stolen property. There were no passengers on the bus at the time and no one was injured. He could be heard asking officers if he was going to jail as they arrested him on Cadman Plaza West. You think? Officials say the suspect was on probation and is no stranger to law enforcement. His last arrest was for domestic robbery in 2015, but he is said to have had numerous other arrests, including robbery, marijuana possession, assault, and transit fraud. Yeah. Um... (laughs) You know, I wouldn't mind jumping into a, a bus, an airline bus, and driving it around a bunch of boroughs and going on a joyride. That'd be fun. But will I go to jail? Will I? Will I get arrested? <laughs> Am I going? But you know what? That the sad part of that is, it kind of leads me to believe that the guy wanted back in. You know, because why? Three well, squares a day, right? Right. Three squares a day. Get a heat. You get a nice warm blanket. The heated facility, get to work out in the gym. <laughs> or you could be in New York in a freezing cold snowstorm with, you know, barely able to make ends meet. Who knows? Why a bus, though? I mean, you know, make it make it something fun, like a super tug or something like that. Well, this was in a, a public space. So lot 12 is like the kind of like an employee lot that it, it's the AA bus that takes you out there and then it takes you into all the, you know, the, the the concourses um and you know they probably were in an unsecured lot and the guy just was able to drive right off the lot with you know they leave the buses running between shifts and the next person you know they i, I could do it i could do it in lax easy <laughs> grab an american airlines bus in the employee lot and just drive right off the lot <laughs> don't give me Ooh, any air stairs that's what i would like oh air, air stairs would be cool air stairs would be awesome you might not have so the clearance, if, though. if I commit a crime, am I going to go to jail? Like, that's the real question, though. <laughs> like, if I do this, will I go to jail? Uh, jail. Definitely jail. <laughs> like, go to jail. Directly to jail. You shout like that, they, they put you in jail. Right away. No trial, no, no nothing. Journalists, we have a special jail for journalists. You're stealing, right to jail. You're playing music too loud, right to jail. Right away. You're driving too fast, jail. Slow, jail. <laughs> but uh, thanks for uh, thanks for <laughs> letting me share that story. I just I saw that and I laughed so hard. But in good news, uh, you know, we here at Squawk at Ant, we constantly are talking about the pathways to an aviation profession. We've applauded United Airlines for opening their own version of a flight training facility there in Phoenix, Arizona. And we said it then, and we're going to continue to say it, and more and more airlines are going to have to step up. Well, Delta has recently stepped up to the training game, and they've announced recently, and this is from news.delta.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. They announced that Delta launches Propel Flight Academy to train the next generation of airline pilots. This article just came out recently here on March 21st. In summary, the Delta Propel Flight Academy operated in partnership with a training provider, Skyborne Airline Academy, will open its doors to the first class of students in June of 2023 and is now accepting applications for interested candidates. Again, did I mention? I'll put a link in the show notes. 
Delta Airlines, through its Propel Pilot Career Path program, is launching its fourth pathway for aspiring pilots since, since its inception in 2018, a dedicated pilot training academy in partnership with Skyborne Airline Academy. Students can apply to begin training when the Propel Flight Academy opens in June at its campus in Vero Beach, Florida with Delta providing eligible students with up to $20,000 in financial support. Delta, through its Propel Pilot Career Path Program, that's a tongue twister, is launching a pilot academy dedicated to training the airline's next generation of aviators. The Delta Propel Flight Academy, operated in partnership with training provider Skyborne, yeah, we said that, yeah, will open its doors in June, yep, we said that too. And yeah, the, it goes on and on, and there's even a note there from Delta's VP of Flight Operations and the System Chief Pilot. But yeah, to be able to get $20,000 in financial support, to have a pathway to Delta, that's, that's huge. Delta has always been a, a big carrier. I know they've had other pathways, but this will be the first of its kind. Well, there, Tony, there's one thing that you uh, missed on underneath that. It says students will be eligible to receive $20,000 in financial support. The next sentence is a huge one. Delta will cover the cost of interest on student loans from select lenders. It's uh, in the, it's in there. It's under, it's that two sentence paragraph underneath the Academy is the fourth pathway. Oh, okay. Like, they're saying that Delta will cover the cost of the interest of the student loans. Wow. That, I don't think any other provider has done that. They haven't. That right there is huge. Yeah. Can you imagine? And you know, especially if, I can't even imagine if somebody <laughs> offered that to me when I went through and got my student uh, pilot. I was going to say, imagine you, Tony, not having to spend $120,000 over 20 plus years on student loans just because the interest compounded and compounded. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can only imagine. Like I mean, this, this is going to be a newly refurbished 12,000 square foot facility in Vero Beach. Uh, I, I think this is a winner here. I think Delta is trying to, um, like, with their new contract, with this, like, they're they're just trying to be the top tier airline, and I, I, they they're really looking that way. Hopefully, they've got these uh, these lenders already lined up, and you know, in, in agreement uh, to uh, provide loans to the students, because you know that was one of the things. Uh, Tony, I know when, you know, you and I were doing our flight training and, and Roger, possibly you too, um, the lenders started to fade away because people were taking out these massive flight training loans and then either not paying them back or taking forever to pay them back, forbearances, defaults, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And so the lenders just stopped lending to people looking to pursue flight training. So I, I would imagine that Delta's probably got uh, lenders lined up, ready to provide loans to their students, which is, is good because, you know, after those, those lending providers dried up, I mean, it was probably you know, at least 10 years before lenders started. Yeah. Uh, being willing to dip toes back into that. I think the industry has changed a lot because that was happening back 
in the day because I, you know, from a lender standpoint, if I'm going to lend, unfortunately, regardless of this program, it is incredibly expensive to learn how to fly. And I think that back before there was, okay, well, we're going to lend you a hundred to $150,000. And then you're going to graduate to get a job and get paid $23,000 a year. I mean, at some point that just doesn't make, somebody's going to figure out that, the, that these pilots are not going to be able to afford that payment. Whereas now you have, you know, you get a $50,000 bonus just to show up on the first day of class. And then you get paid, you know, I don't really know, around 60, just as a new hire FO, um, mm-hmm. as a new hire FO with a regional. I, do, I mean, I do want to point out what Alex was saying, you know, I think, which is a fantastic point to Delta, that's still going to be a win because it's going to come at pennies on the dollar for them because $20,000 in, in the cost of an overall flight training academy, which has run up even more than back when we were learning to fly. I mean, $20,000 is not, I mean, that, that, that's, that's what is barely, that? That's barely your private. Yeah. I mean, that's, it, it's not even going to, yeah. I mean, that's a, maybe a couple thousand dollars for one year, even at 10% interest. And then that payment should be, should be coming down. And so there is still, I mean, a great program, a great program, it looks like. I don't know a lot about it. I don't want to take anything away from it, but just, you know, for those listening that are looking at it, do go in with your eyes open, take it with a grain of salt, because this sounds like a student loan that will need to be repaid. That is only, you know, this help from Delta is going to be a small portion of the overall cost to it. And the overall interest that you're going to save just on that $20,000 is still going to be pretty small in the grand scheme of things. Not to take, again, not to take anything away from the program, but go in with your eyes open and, and make sure that you understand before you sign on the dotted line what the expectations are of you, what your, um, the expectations that Delta will have from you if you, if you use their money. <laughs> Maybe going to United when Delta paid, it could bring a lawsuit. I, I have heard some stories about people trying to do that kind of stuff. Really? Um, like I said, just make sure that you go in with your eyes with your eyes wide open in terms of of what the expectations are of you um, before you sign on that dotted line. Yeah, yeah, and, and we've we've talked about this before in the past and on previous shows about funding and how expensive and what the right pathway is, especially if you're a, you know, thinking about becoming an aspiring pilot. Listen to this podcast. We thank you for doing that. Uh, but absolutely, look at all your options. Don't be in a rush, especially if you're a young person. You know, the latest I think was from the safety summit that they said that airlines are going to have to continue to hire in the thousands every year until the year 2035, which is an updated estimate. 2035. We have more than 10 years projected. Uh, here in the near future, unless you know something major happens, like I don't know, World War Three, um, it could happen. Um, <laughs> especially if we're not going to go down this political road here, but um, yeah, uh, be careful. Don't make the same mistakes I made. <laughs> uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket and get a giant loan. And and you know, I I should have, you know, the crystal ball is is still foggy for me. I still don't know what I should have done, but. Um, yeah, Roger, you you made some some fantastic points with with no before you sign on that dotted line. You know, get advice from people you trust, um, and don't be in such a hurry 
because once you sign, especially in an airline that's helping you pay, they've got you. You're theirs for the taking. I I think you hit the nail on the head, uh, Roger, with that is like that there's a lot with all these and Delta's obviously now getting into the game with United and, and pulling this out. And, you know, it, it, what, what we need is what we need, what uh, um, the European countries have. And you were saying this with um, uh, the captain that you had on the female captain. um, Oh, with Julie. Yeah. Yeah, where Sabos. you know you have the stuff like KLM or Lufthansa, where they hire you from the street and feed you through their their program, and you become an basically an SIC on a long haul plane while you build your time, so that you can eventually move over and get out of that quote SIC second, third, fourth pilot role, and then become a pilot. But you start from they literally hire you from the street and pay to you. Yeah. For you to go to school yeah, internships we need that here in the united states we don't need to be taking out these loans we need what did what did she call it the abonicio there was a word that she used abonicio yes programs yeah the abonicio program we is from the beginning in other words from from the beginning we need yeah you're absolutely right alex from the beginning we need that kind of thing that program what that they have in other countries where you've been selected you've been tested and there you you basically zero time and you get hired with a legacy carrier and you go through their program their education system now if you fail two check rides or or two events then you're out and now you got to think about well how are you going to pay back so far what you've done um and they and they have a little come to jesus moments with you and and counseling and they say okay uh, you've been struggling here and there are you sure this is for you because um and i i've known a few people in my lifetime that have gone through those kind of programs and have had those kind of comments made um and you know even i'm thinking of uh, adelia captain adelia when we had her on the show the miami captain and and everything she was told no 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 and told some extremely sexist and um like comments that that you think of oh my god i can't believe you had to deal with all that but her determination and her drive for it, which I think most people in this industry are what sets us apart. And you don't always have to break the bank to do it. You just have to be careful. But just because you're being told no by maybe an Abinicio program doesn't mean you can't be a pilot. Maybe you're just a pilot in a different realm of aviation. Um, we need good instructors. Always hard to find. And now especially, man, a good CFI, they can charge a premium especially if they have history in the airline industry. Well, we want to talk about one last topic before we go. And I know Roger's already... Do, do we want to talk about this? Perking up a little do bit. Do you want to talk about this? We want to talk about this, Roger. How exciting. Okay, now, we've been talking about contract negotiations, pilot shortages, high demand for the industry for a while now. It's been over a year that we've been talking about pilot contracts and how 12 airlines out there in the U.S. are all under negotiations. Hold now, on, hold on. Let me go get my violin. I'll be right back. Okay, you go ahead and do that, Roger. You, that, I need some background music. So Delta recently, in an industry-leading attempt, go figure, Delta just signed 
a pilot contract. Okay. And it's going to be the industry standard. Now, normally the way these contracts work, for those of you that are maybe not in the industry yet, the union, the pilot union will get together and they'll have an elected uh, board, a contract negotiations board, and they'll go and they'll go to the table with the members of management periodically, once a month, once a quarter, whatever it is. And they'll say, okay, here's what we want in the contract. Here are the lines in these sections and what and so on and so forth. And then the management will go, okay, well, go ahead and leave it with us and we'll have our lawyers look at it and we'll come back with the counter proposal. And this is how negotiations go, usually. But occasionally, this doesn't quite play out that way. It, recently, we had news <coughs> that American Airlines says it wants a deal with the pilots soon. This from Airline Weekly. Put a link in the show notes. Ted Reed wrote this on March 14th. And he wrote that American airline pilots say that they are mystified by their CEO, Robert Isom. He publicly promised a Delta level contract when the carrier had not made such a proposal to their union negotiators. But with negotiations going on, the airline indicated a proposal is close. We look forward to reaching an agreement with APA or the Allied Pilots Association quickly so that Americans' pilots can benefit from meaningful enhancements to their pay and quality of life, American spokesperson Gordon Jondro said late on Monday. We believe a deal is within reach and can be negotiated expeditiously. The two sides are, negotiati are negotiating this week. In a message to its members entitled, Offer? What Offer? On Sunday night, officials of the Allied Pilots Association expressed concern that on Tuesday, Isom released a video saying American would match the Delta offer. Then on Sunday, APA said management took the unprecedented step of communicating directly with congressional offices and others in Washington, D.C. regarding the content of the video. To be clear, Robert Isom's negotiating team has not made any offer to APA's negotiating team containing pay, benefits, or the significant improvements to schedule-related and quality-of-life items. Reference in his direct message to the pilots on Tuesday, APA said. Offers are made at the bargaining table, not through videos to membership or to letters to Congress, the union said. APA spokesperson Dennis Taser said the union was surprised that ISOM seemed to bypass its negotiators. Is this a nefarious attempt to bypass the union? Or are they so disorganized that they forgot to pass us anything at the table, Taylor said. Going to Capitol Hill with an offer is unprecedented. John Dro declined to specify why Americans said publicly that it would match Delta before it said so in negotiations. However, it is likely American felt a need to address lingering concerns that it might not match Delta, even before they made a specific offer. Yeah, no, no, no. That's Breaking really news. Legacy Airlines asks its pilots to fly airplanes. Roger, yeah. Roger, you're getting dangerously close to accidentally being dropped from the channel. Uh <laughs> <laughs> oh no, what happened to Roger's oh, connection? your internet connection, oh, Roger. No. <laughs> Look, uh, guys, you know, I really appreciated having Julie on. You know, she's running for vice 
chair of the Los Angeles uh, domicile for APA for American Airlines. Uh, Julie's got a, a good head on her shoulders, and I and I really appreciated having her on. I, I've tried to get other union leaders and and heads on, but they're so busy right now. Um, and hopefully in the future we can have more, so we can get more insight. But you know, Roger has a point. Are we complaining? Do we sound like a bunch of whiners? Well, I can tell you right now that American Airlines has started their strike operations. They're, they're getting ready to get approval to, to strike in the event that this contract that was promised to be done by April 1st actually gets proposed. Because if it's not, they're calling it an April Fool's. And our next thing is to strike. April 30th. So, or at least at American. Um, so it's a big deal. It's a big deal because we have been hoodwinked enough times over the years at Legacy Airlines, and we don't want to continue to have the can be kicked down the road. And meanwhile, all our peers at other airlines are getting industry leading contracts and annual increases to their pay because of things like inflation and, and cost of living expenses and all that stuff. Meanwhile, we're still, we have not received any kind of cost of living or industry average uh, influx uh, increase uh, since this contract was expired. So it's not, you know, we should be able to work a clean schedule, not get pushed into fatigued, not have the risk of safety related issues come up because we're being pushed to the, our breaking point. We're like that freight train. The, tra the, train. the tracks were designed for the trains to be a certain length so that they can pull off when a sensor detects a heated bearing. And when you make us longer than we need to be because we need to be more productive, we need to do more work with less people or less uh, train engines, then those safety barriers are really irrelevant. If you can't pull off because you're too long to pull off on this one, you got to wait for the next one, things are going to happen. And before something happens, we want to make sure we correct it. Having well-rested pilots, well-compensated pilots that don't feel like they need to pick up premium and OG flying constantly in order to keep up with the demands of inflation, just give us a normal contract that we deserve that's industry average. We're not asking to be the biggest and the best. We're asking a minimum to have the industry average. And if we do that, we'll have a good career. We won't feel the pressures, like Roger was indicating earlier, to keep up with post-pandemic society and the pressures to keep up with inflation and keep our kids safe and pay for college. Instead, just give us a fair wage where we feel like, well, we're getting paid or close to the same as what everybody else is getting paid that's doing my exact same job, and we're not getting pushed to the brink of safety and disaster. Because we know that grandma and grandpa are back there, and we want to make sure that they're all safe. Those pressures add to us not calling in fatigue as well. So all of this is related. And though, Roger, you may make fun, and we know you are, and we know you jest, but it's important because it's one of the factors in the chain of safety. And, and, I, would, and I, would agree with, I would agree with you, Tony. Obviously, we are a group of pilots here. And so I like, yes, I enjoy screwing around with you guys. However, there are like everything in life, there are two sides to every story. And I am not 
you know, totally like management is without fault here because you guys are on two totally different sides and they are pulling very hard in one direction. You guys are pulling very hard in the other direction. It's like freaking politics or something. And really it needs to come into the middle, except nobody really wants to give an inch because, (laughs) and that, and that is a both sides thing. I am not anti anti union pilots or anti airline pilots or anything. And I am not pro company because they're, I mean, basically squeeze every dollar out of you guys or the operation for shareholders. And, you know, that's, well, you're, you're trying to build this money on the backs of your employees without, you know, it's, it's not a all or nothing kind of thing. So I do want to just throw that out there. Yes, I enjoy it. Yes, I will continue to do it, but that is not, but the, the true reality of the situation is, is that it is, a, it should, it is and should be a negotiation where both sides need to kind of look at the other side's point of view. And that's where I'm going to stop on that. I am kind of curious about Terry. I thought I saw him kind of laughing at a few times about uh, where he comes down on this. <laughs> As a probationary pilot, all I will say <laughs> is my union speaks for me. <laughs> I like that. My union speaks for me. I can understand where the legacy pilots are coming from in this, in this whole thing. I've grown up obviously in the legacy family, right? Um, and since nine 11, uh, the legacy pilots have not had a contract given to them under duress. Every, every contract that they have signed has been under some kind of duress. Oh, hey, look, 9-11 happened. Well, you guys got to take this concession. Oh, hey, the recession happened. You guys got to take this concession. Oh, hey, the merger happened. You guys got to take this concession. Like, it's time for legacy pilots to have a contract that is owed to them for 20, what are we, 22 years now? 23 years post 9-11? Yeah. Yeah. Contract first. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. Roger's going, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, uh, pre-show, we won't even talk about what he's talking about. With yeah. Job offers and <laughs> making double, triple what he's getting paid. I'm like, come on, man. So you don't have a union whoa, that, that's whoa, representing whoa. you. But you're unions. looking for, you're looking whoa, for your whoa, cash no, no, payday, no, no, too. No. If, you're, if we're going to be included in on this, you have to be included on this <laughs> as well. It's so funny how I've thought about that several times. Actually, not just even on this podcast, but before. And finally, all of a sudden, somebody brought it up like all this time that I'm like bashing on you guys. And no, I just get left alone. Yep. Yep. Don't worry, Roger. The day of reckoning will come. Oh, well, gentlemen, it, you know, it maybe it probably just helps that I understand a little bit more about your world than you understand about mine. And that's, yeah. the, only, that's the kind of the advantage that I have. Yeah. And it's very true. Very true. Well, gentlemen, as we wrap up the show today, uh, any last thoughts? Roger. Huh? Roger. Huh? Oh, I've got plenty of thoughts, but not about the show. Okay, that's fatiguing. <laughs> I'm trying to, trying to set up uh, stuff for our, our move and uh, get some houses all squared away so we can from this weekend. Make sure you have so. a, an extra bedroom in there for your studio. Just like Oh, I'm I'm looking that it has to have at least a den, you know. Yeah, so that way that's my. Obviously, my you were paid way too much. He if is you're shopping at a regional airline for a house that has a den for your podcast yeah. studio. I was sleeping on my in-laws' and sofa. Four bedrooms. My first year, 
$22,000, $25,000 a year, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. First year. Hey, I can't help it making six figures my, you know, first year as a regional airline pilot. If he's a regional airline FO and he needs to come look at my little itty bitty condo, he's buying like a mansion. Well, it's Texas. Yeah, I was going to say it's Texas. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of fatiguing uh, conversations, gentlemen, uh, you know, I just want to say thank you to all of you. You know, thank you to Captain Roger. Thank you for Terry for joining us. And thank you for Alex for being here. You know, appreciate having you find gentlemen and friends on the show. And we want to hear about all of you out there, dear listeners. We want to hear your feedback. So we do hope that you'll send us a line. You can do that right from our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, it really would help us out. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, to like the show, uh, give us some stars and, and something. It, all of it helps. You know, Get the word out about this podcast to other aviators out there. Share that with your friends. Subscribe, follow, do whatever you can on whatever platform you can. We would deeply appreciate it well you can also send us an email tell us your story we'd love to highlight your story on air it just send us an email right there from aviatortony.com facebook youtube and instagram users can also find us under the squawk ident podcast and i just want to say one final thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators keep the dirty side down out there stay safe and take care of each other bye y'all See ya. Peace. I'm tired. Can I go to bed now, Tony? You woke me up early this morning. Really early. I'm I'm really sorry if I could have helped you later, but I'm actually got to get ready to go fly now. Um, yeah, I got four legs today. I got reassigned last night. Let me hit some stuff. Four legs. Four legs. Hold on.